Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind me. Howdy folks, howdy and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio, the podcast, the only podcast that I know of for, specifically for people who play bluegrass music or are trying to figure out how to do it. As I just said in the intro, I've been thinking as I approach, I'm creeping up on episode 100. I've been thinking about modifying that uh, intro. I did that intro, you know, the week before I put out episode one. And uh, I don't know, I'm, I may be getting a little tired of it and you probably are too, but I, but I sure do like that tune. Anyway, that might be something I, I work on here. Another thing I can waste my time on. Um, today, before I get into the episode, I want to, uh, mention something. I I got an email from, I got an email from two people. I talked uh, somewhat about, uh, tuning gizmos and so forth. And I said something like, yeah, I've got my favorites, but I I, I don't have it right here in front of me and all that. And so I got them out and I'm just going to tell you, this is after 40 years after having, uh, I had the first, um, I've had so many tuners, tuning machines, you can't imagine. Um, I've tried a lot of them. And for different instruments, I've used different things. And I'm just going to tell you what my my current three favorites that I actually use in practice. I mean, in out there gigging. This is what I use. On my Dobro, I use a Tune Tech. One touch TT one. I don't know if they still make it. I just checked and I found them on Amazon. I found them all over the place. I, I found this tuner for fourteen ninety nine, and I found it for 26 some. So, I mean, it's all over the place. I don't know if TuneTech still makes this, but let me tell you why I like this. This primarily lives in my Dobro case. The thing I really like about it, is it has one button on off on off that's it i like that and it seems to be pretty good at um zeroing in on the fundamental of i mostly have used this on uh dobro and banjo once in a while on the bass um anyway I like it because it's simple. A lot of times at a jam session, you, you whip your tuner off and hand it to somebody else and they're, they can't figure out how to turn it on and they're looking at it and it's got, you know, like nine buttons and stuff and they're punching buttons and they, they figure it out and then they hand it back to you. And three days later, you're using it and you look at it and you see that the calibration is now on 441 because the person you loaned it to accidentally hit the calibrate button and was monkeying around. You know what I'm saying? Simplicity. I'm big on simplicity. The TT one has an on and an off and it has generally worked pretty good for me. So that's the little clip on that I presently carry around for serious tuning. Uh, I use the sonic research. I don't remember the model number. 
<laughs> I said I had them with me. That I don't have in front of me. Sonic Research, to me, has the best tuning machine that's in a in an affordable price range. Unfortunately, the original model, which I have, I think it's called the S, I better not say. The original model had a plastic case, had the usual, you know, input jacks where you could plug an instrument into it and out. And it also had a microphone. And the, the Sonic Research tuner is a, a strobe tuner, but the strobe is displayed as a, as a circle of LEDs. So if, if you're flat, the LEDs cycle and they appear to turn left or counterclockwise. And if you're sharp, they move clockwise. Now I want to say that there are a lot, there are some tuners that pretend to be strobe tuners and they use that same kind of rotating circular display to um, imply, you know, flat and sharp. But to my knowledge, uh, if you set aside the con strobe tuner and, and the real strobes where there's a neon bulb in there flashing and a spinning disc in front of it, if you set those aside and you go with the electronic strobe tuners, to my knowledge, the only, um, well, there is one for piano tuners, which I won't discuss here because it's about $1,800. But um, the Sonic Research is, it's probably down, it's around 200 bucks or maybe a, maybe a little less. It is a true strobe tuner, even though it's displaying it with LEDs. And if you read their um, information about the thing, you'll understand what it's doing. Uh, a lot of these so-called strobe looking tuners are simulating the strobe. And, and this is not. Sonic Research, I'm telling you what, that is a good tuner. However, they have converted now to a, a stomp box version, which is a lot more rugged. I've got a guitar player friend of mine who has one. You know, it's in a, you know, like a die cast aluminum pot metal. I don't know. It's in a metal case with the usual on off buttons and in outs and stuff, but they, they have eliminated the microphone. So I'm glad I have the old one and you might be able to find the old one with the microphone, but that is the best tuner I have ever used. And uh, so that's it. I like the Sonic research. If, if you have a pickup in your instrument, you know, I have a, I have a Fishman transducer on my mandolin. And so even if I had the stomp box version of it, I could plug into the transducer and get a signal. And, you know, there are these little clip on, um, little alligator clips with a, with a cable on it that you can plug into your, into your tuner. And that would work on the present version, but the old version had the microphone and I really liked it. Unfortunately, I don't think they sell it anymore. So that's it. I like the Sonic Research, and I really like this little TuneTech one-touch no-brainer. <laughs> the fewer the buttons, the better. Okay, so enough about uh, enough about tuners. Now, the topic for today is why do we record? 
think about recordings. A recording is a, it's like a photograph in an old photo album. You know, there you are, 10 years old, caught your first bluegill at the lake and you're, you brought it home from the lake and you put it in the freezer and the thing is frozen stiff and you're standing there holding your, this little six inch fish and your dad takes your picture. And 40 years later, you look at that picture and you can remember that day. You can remember the smell of those worms. You can, you know, it takes you back. That photograph is a snapshot in time. Just pull out an old photo album and start turning the pages. Uh, you know, a recording is like that. It's, it's a document. Now, it may only be of interest to you, or it may only be of interest to your family or to your band members. You know, I've gotten together at Cedar Hill reunions every five years since we started doing them. I think we did the first one was the, I think the first one was the 15 year and we've done the 20 and the 25 and the 30 and I, 35, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what we're up to now. And, uh, Jimmy, our banjo player, Jim duck Adkins, he had a massive scrapbook that he kept with all the flyers and ticket stubs and passes and photos and, Newspaper ads. I mean, he, he has the museum of Cedar Hill. And as I would thumb through it, I would see things and it's, you're seeing, you know, there we are standing there playing it, whatever. That is a snapshot, literally a snapshot in time. And that's what recordings are or can be because a recording can either be a capturing of the sound of a particular time and place or these days, it can be a mixture of times and places. I mean, it's entirely possible to record, let's say, a five-piece bluegrass band and all five members live in different countries and record the parts, you know, two years apart. And then it's all assembled and it gives the impression of a snapshot in time. So, you know, at least you need to differentiate between is this a true snapshot in time or is this an edited together in the photo world you know it'd be photoshopped you know you take you take a picture of me when i was 10 and photoshop me into the same picture with me at 45 you know it looked like well there's there's this guy and his son no that they're both me so editing can do that let's set aside the editing um and think of it in terms of a snapshot in time here's what i want to want you to ask yourself at whatever level of a player you are, you may have become somewhat interested in recording because probably you were first exposed to bluegrass, probably through recordings. And then as you get into playing, practically every instructional book comes with a CD or with some audio tracks or video. And I'm, I'm going to avoid talking about video in this particular episode, I want to stick with audio for right now. If you just started playing bluegrass today and you want to hear Bill Monroe, you're going to have to listen to a recording. Well, thank God somebody made that recording because you're not going to hear him. You know, if, if there was no recording made, same goes for Elvis, same goes for, you know, 
doesn't matter who it is. If they didn't bother to make the recording, you can't hear it. So I want to race through and I'm going to try to go fast because I'm approaching the end of the month and my, my upload bandwidth is getting tight and I don't want to have to move up into that uh, next tier where I have to pay more unless a bunch of you want to, you know, donate something to the grass talk radio supporter fund. Then I could, you know, do like three hour episodes and stuff. <laughs> anyway, I want to go through very quickly. I'm going to race through this episode. Why we record number one to analyze your playing. It's a great tool for that. I did this when I first started, I had a little cassette machine. I might've even had a reel to reel. Well, I did have one, but I, I, I don't know. I can remember me playing the banjo into a cassette machine and then hitting rewind and playing it back and listen to it. You just had a little microphone built into the, the machine. You remember those, uh, they were flat, had a little handle that pulled out were about six inches wide and about 10 inches long and about two inches thick little controls on the front. Those are cool. I think I still have one to analyze your playing. It is so enlightening to play something and then listen back to it. It can also be very depressing because you think you're doing pretty good. And then you hear it and you go, Oh man, that does not sound like Bela Fleck. <laughs> so it's, it takes courage. It's a lot like looking in a mirror. And I've, I think I did an episode in the very early stages of this called looking in the mirror or something like that. That's the first thing to analyze your playing to, uh, stop, you know, when you're listening back to the recording, then you're like the audience and you can stop. You're not thinking about how to do it and where to put your fingers and all that. You can just listen to it and say, well, what does that sound like? And if you're not, not happy with it, you know, get busy fixing what's wrong. And, uh, you know, when you're starting to like what you hear on those recordings, Hey, you're making progress. So that's number one. Number two is to document your progress, which is a lot like number one, except that now you're, you're making these little recordings of some specific test thing and you're, you're making them over a period of time so that you can go back and listen to the early ones and judge your progress. I, I have a whole episode on that called documenting your progress. So that's another reason to make audio recordings. Another one is for historical purposes. Now you might not think that a recording of you has any historical value, but of course a recording of Ralph Stanley does. Well, that's not necessarily true because it depends on who's interested. It could be that your great grandson a long time from now is really interested. I wish I had a recording of my grandfather playing the harmonica or something, you know, I wish I had that for historical purposes. Now, obviously depending upon who's playing and you know, how, um, important, <laughs> whatever that means of a musician, they become the more importance is placed upon the his historical recordings. But if nobody bothered to record them, they don't exist, so they're of no historical value. I'm just saying there is some historical value in recordings. And uh, sometimes they're, they're just, it's historical in your own little circle. 
Uh, here, for example, is a historical recording. It might even be classified as hysterical recording of my friend Bo Gustafsson from Sweden, who's made several bluegrass pilgrimages over here to the U.S. And he's a uh, he's a banjo player in Sweden. And he's built mandolins and banjos and all this kind of stuff. Well, he was visiting and he was at my house, him and a couple of his Swedish bluegrass picking buddies. And we were down in my basement studio. And at the time I had a, an old Gibson K4 mando cello. I think it was a 1914 and we were pulling it out. I pulled it out and we were all looking at it and handing it around. Everybody was trying it out. And Bo picked it up and started monkeying around with it, and I hit record. And I'm so glad I did. I've got uh, this little recording of Bo Gustafson basically monkeying around on a Gibson K4 Mando cello. Here's another example of a of an historical tape recording recording um an old friend of mine was taking mandolin lessons from tiny moore and he used to record his lessons he would carry a i guess he had a cassette machine or something i don't know he used to carry this to um um his mandolin lesson. Uh, the guy's name is Jim Kirkland. And uh, I ran into him again here, I don't know, a year or so ago. And we got to talking about all this stuff. And he said he had all these tapes. And he sent me a few of them. And uh, because of Tiny Moore's importance in the mandolin world, he was an electric mandolin player and, you know, swing player, jazz guy. And, Played with Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. Well, he was teaching mandolin lessons, and Kirkland took lessons from him and recorded the lessons, you know, the material. But he also, at about that same time, Tiny Moore did a couple of shows with the David Grisman Quintet. Quartet, I don't know if it was, I guess it was Quintet then. I, I Probably in San Francisco, did some shows. Well, Kirkland was hanging around, hanging around backstage and recorded a jam session, just kind of warming up and fooling around and jamming on some stuff with uh, David Grisman and his group um, and Tiny Moore, just jamming. You know, it's just a cassette recorder, just, you know, like held up there while they're, they're just playing. Let's play a little snatch of that.
So that's historical stuff, you know. That could be you holding that recorder. And if you're running around to bluegrass festivals and shows these days, the recording technology is so easy to put in anybody's hands. You should be recording a lot of stuff. I don't suggest you get in people's face with it, you know. And sometimes keeping it a little on the sly is a good idea. Um, anyway, it's just cool stuff. And you never know what importance that recording you make might have in the future to somebody. To somebody. Okay, the fourth reason. You're going to your lesson or you're going to a workshop. A lot of people record that stuff. I think it's a good idea to make sure that that's okay. You know, I didn't want people coming to lessons and just hitting record and recording the entire 30 minute lesson from start to finish. I didn't like that because it kind of, um, it makes you self-conscious as a teacher. You feel like, you know, you're performing rather than just talking to the person one-on-one -on -one and speaking freely and so on. And the other kind of more practical reason I don't like it is because they go home with a 30-minute tape of the lesson, and most of what's in the lesson they don't need to relive. Some things need to be forgotten. Like, hey, how's it going? Hey, did you did you uh did you go to that picking last weekend I told you about? Yeah, that stuff. You don't need to hear that again. But if a person says, you know, you're working on something, and I demonstrate something, and the and the, and if you think it would benefit the student, you might say, um, you know, it's okay to pull your recorder out. Let's, let's play that thing together and record it. So, you know, maybe they go home from the lesson with, you know, five minutes of material. And the reason I think it's better to have less is that during the week in between the lessons, they don't have so much to dig through and to find little you know, certain spots and stuff. If there's something I want them to hear and to work on, and I think it would be valuable for them, you know, on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday, let's just record that little, that little thing. So you can hear it again in case you forget what it sounds like. Anyway, some, some teachers don't mind and they don't care. Some teachers, and I've done this a few times, just recorded the entire thing, hand them a cassette at the end of the lesson, you know, they can't say, they, you know, if I said something, they have no excuse for saying, well, I didn't hear you say that. Well, listen to the tape. You know, of course, the, the problem is most people don't go back and listen to that stuff. They might listen to it in the car on the way home, and then it just sits there gathering dust. I'm sure many people have recorded, you know, multiple hour um, workshops and then never listen to them, you know. So it's, that may be kind of a waste of time unless you record specific little things that you will listen to. And it's just really tedious and time-consuming. Okay, number five, gig tapes. And that is just recording your band, or it could be a jam session, just recording it, you know, so that you can go back and, and listen to it as an audience member might hear it. You know, give you it gives you... The ability to do all the things we've talked about before. It gives you the ability to analyze your playing or someone else's playing or the group's playing. And if you collect these over time, you can document the progress of the band. You know, documenting the progress of a jam session is probably not, you know, too important because, you know, jams tend to kind of just 
they're so in flux all the time. You never know what's coming next. And they change, the people change. So documenting the progress of a jam, unless it's the same people coming all the time, I would just call that a band. You know, you've formed a band. Uh, and of course, historical purposes. I have, I literally have boxes full of cassette tapes of our band playing gigs where I would just take a feed off the board and run it into a recorder and hit record, turn the tape over at the end of the set. I'd get these 45 minute cassettes. There were 90 minutes and you flipped them or 45 on a side. I'd record this stuff and then listen to it the next day, browbeating myself on how lousy my playing was. And most of them I never did anything with. Some of them got recorded over, but I literally have boxes and boxes and boxes of this stuff. And then I got into doing it on CDs, had a CD recorder that I carried to gigs. I didn't record every gig, but I was probably recording about, you know, one out of 10. And when you do a couple thousand gigs, that's a heap of junk. And most of them, you know, is the kind of thing I listen to on the way home, you know, driving back two hours at two in the morning, I'm listening to the tape. Once in a while, I'd hear some, some stuff that I considered really pure gold and I would edit those out and do save those. So historical purposes, it's your history. Your history is just as important as anybody else's, you know, to you. So gig tapes, tape yourself, you know. You want to have an interesting practice session, you know, have you got a band together that's been playing together two years. Just kind of on the sly, record a couple of your shows, and then get everybody together and say, hey, at practice today, instead of running over this new tune and all this stuff, why don't we all just sit here, everybody get a cup of coffee or a beer or something, let's listen to our last show. And if anybody has any commentary, raise your hand and I'll hit pause and let's talk about what we just heard. Oh man, bands could improve a great deal. They could also break up over this, <laughs> uh, you know, but gig tapes are really valuable. I have so many of them. It's unbelievable. I'll never listen to most of them, but every now and then I dig through and I find something that I just like, God, I'm so glad I recorded that. And sometimes it was, you know, sort of special occasions. Somebody got up with you. Somebody was a guest playing with you and you've got it on tape. That's really cool. There's a bunch of them that happened that I don't have on tape. And years, years go by and you, just for you, it might be good to go back and listen to those tapes. I have a, in the latter years, I don't remember when I first got the zoom H two recorder, but that thing was great. It was like the size of a, chic electric razor and it just looked like a little like a bar of soap with a little tiny tripod on it that thing was great and i would just set it down on the stage you know put it about two feet in front of the monitors point it kind of towards the band and hit record and let it run all night long and then cut that stuff up in the morning and try to make some of it but i made, made a recording one time of cedar hill performing at the douglas douglas i can't talk today at the Douglas Theater in Macon, Georgia, where we did an opening act thing for the Lovell Sisters. And I just, I was interviewing our bass player on the recorder before we walked out, just goofing around with him. And uh, I, I remember the question I said, Fred, do you, uh, do you find that you play better 
if you go to the bathroom before you walk on stage or is it, do, you, do you feel like you perform better if you hold it throughout the whole set and then go to the bathroom after? You know, I was just goofing around with Fred. And then we walked on stage and I walk on with my mantle and I've already got the recorder recording and I just set it down on the floor about 18 inches in front of the, <laughs> the monitors and we did our show. When we finished... Taking our bows and everything, I just reached down, picked it up, and walked off and hit stop and listened to it the next day. And that recording, you know, gave me a chance to hear what we were doing. It, it, it turned out very, very well. But a few years later, or not even a few years, about a year later, that our bass player, Fred, he died. And I went back and listened to that. And that tape is so much more meaningful to me now as a historical document to, to hear me, you know, goofing around with Fred backstage and then to hear us out there doing our thing and him playing the bass and him singing Ezekiel saw the wheel and all this kind of stuff. It's just a, you know, on a personal level, I'm so glad that I have that tape. I have thousands of memories, but, they're harder to crystallize in your mind than when you play the tape or the memories come flooding back. So that's a valuable reason to record your gigs. Another number six demos. You know, if you're fishing through those gig tapes and you come up with some pretty choice sounding stuff, save them. You know, you need a demo. If you're going to get hired, if you, if you want to be playing anywhere, people want to know what you sound like and you can cherry pick those gig tapes and find something that represents, you know, the best of what you do and slap them up on your Facebook page or put them on, turn them into YouTube videos or put them on your website or whatever. That's the very rudimentary way of, you know, demoing who you are, what you sound like. And, you know, and of course, demos can be a lot more elaborate than that. They can be, you know, full-blown studio efforts and stuff, which, you know, for most like startup bands, I don't really even recommend that because you don't have an audience there. It's good to have that audience reaction going on. Number seven, and that's recording to create commercial offerings, creating copies of music that to sell. Obviously, the record industry, that's what they're all about. But so are little podunk bluegrass bands. You know, there are many a gig that I have played over the years that we made more money peddling cassette tapes, record albums, C or CDs. Made more money doing that than we got paid for playing the gig. And it can make the difference. It can make, you know, an extra hundred dollars. You know, 10 tapes sold for 10 bucks is a hundred bucks. That's 20 bucks a piece, you know, for the five guys. It, it makes a significant difference. So on the low end, you're, you can create a commercial recording and not worry too much. You know, don't think about it like, Oh, we might win a Grammy for this, you know, but it's just putting some, putting some music on in other people's hands. And today it can be done through CDs. It can be done on thumb drives. You could just copy your MP3s over to a thumb drive and sell the thumb drives. You could have people download them off your website. You know, you could set you up with some kind of a little account. It doesn't have to be iTunes. You could go over to PayHip 
and put your album up on pay hip and somebody pays, you know, $9 and can download all your tracks. It's very easy to do. You don't have to sign up with iTunes or anything. So you can do it digitally or in a physical form on the low end and have a little something that your, your friends and family can hold in their hands, play in their, in their car, play to their friends, you know, play to the guy down at the rotary club. That's having a golf tournament and thinking about having a band at the after party or whatever. Then that's the low end on in the middle. You know, that's where you, you create a, kind of a replica of a commercial release. You create a real CD or, or a real digital release where you're dropping tunes, you know, and you're doing it on iTunes and all that. You can do that and not spend 10,000 or $50,000 doing it. You can spend 500 bucks and produce this product. If, if you know what you're doing or find somebody who knows what they're doing. And so that's that kind of middle, middle ground. You're playing these gigs and people are basically buying this stuff as souvenirs. And again, you're not thinking, well, we might win a Grammy on this, you know, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do a good job recording them. You should, you should put your best foot forward all the time, especially when it goes on record because it's there forever. You know, if anybody ever listens to it. There's the real problem, getting somebody to actually listen to what you did. But, you know, the, the, the quality and the energy of the music is more important than the technical aspects of the recording. And if that were not true, there wouldn't be all those great recordings from the 1940s recorded or in the 50s and 30s with, recorded with one microphone in one take. Stand around the mic, turn it on, and play. It's... The music is more important than the recording technique. Now, the recording technique can help your music, but it can't fix your music. You know, I don't care about all this auto tune. And, you know, in some cases, it can actually make your music worse by making it very sterile and overproduced sounding. But, you know, what I'm saying is if you can play some good music, slap it on tape, you know, (laughs) do something with it. Punch it out there. Those fans that come to see you, they'll buy it, and that'll help fund what you're up to. Then, of course, there's the high end, which everybody is familiar with. You know, studio production, commercial, you know, in every way. And their primary purpose is to make money. Money, money, money. And generally not for you, the artist. Okay? So, anyway... That's the commercial offerings. Here's another category of, of why you should record. And that's experimental. I've done a lot of this too. When you have a little home studio, uh, you tend to do your goofing around with record with the record button hit. And I've made some bizarro, just have an idea and start monkeying around with it and lay down this and put that down. I played that, that kind of rap thing of 10 degrees in a previous episode. That was one of those experiments gone wrong. Here are a couple of other examples. This first one is just monkeying around, um, uh, fooling with, um, harmony singing on, uh, this was on an old Tascam multi-track cassette machine. And it was, a, a anyway, I, I can't explain what this is. I just, I still have it. Uh, 
It's called Why Don't You? Why and here's another experimental just you know there's no purpose for this other than just monkeying around and it's fun and uh Here's kind of a whacked out version of old Joe Clark. Finally, I, I will leave you with this. This is a a version of uh, our band, Pony Express, used to do a song called The Tattooed Lady, a Buddy Ashmore classic that he learned off the jukebox at Indian Springs back when he was a kid. And uh, he'd say, I put a nickel in that jukebox and I listen to that song. And I memorized the thing and, and been singing it his whole life. And uh, it was a... It was done commercially by Skeets McDonald, and it's called The Tattooed Lady. And we did it at every Pony Express show. It was probably the most requested song we did. I think I might have played it in one of the podcasts. I just can't remember. But um, we'd been doing that for a good while, and my wife and I were talking one day, and I said, you know, it would be cool that song is about the tattooed lady. What if we wrote a version of that and turned it around and had it from the woman's perspective and have it the tattooed man? And so we had this, we got this crazy idea and wrote this song and she would occasionally get up at the shows after, after we would do the tattooed lady and we'd introduce her and she would come up and, and sing the tattooed biker. Well, once I married a tattooed biker, it was on a cold and winter day, and tattooed all around his body was a map of the good old USA, and every night before I'd go to sleep, I'd pull down the covers and I would take a peek upon his neck was South Dakota. His spine was Caroline, and tattooed on his chest were all the states out west, and down his crack the Mason Dixon line, and tattooed on his was a map of Florida. It's always been my favorite state of all. Those tattoos gave me quite a Education. I never realized that Florida was so small. Take it, boys. Mmm, that sounds real nice. Let's see what you got, big boy. Tattooed on his was a map of Florida. It's 
it's always been my favorite state of all. Those tattoos gave me quite an education. I never realized that Florida was so small. Now, clearly, that's just goofing around and experimenting. And I made, you know, like six or eight CD copies of that and gave them to the guys in the band just, you know kind of something fun to do and she took one to her father my wife's father was a bartender in long island farmingdale new york he was a bartender for many many years he was the guy with ten thousand jokes and ten thousand friends that he knew on a first name basis and she took him a copy of it and that was one of his favorites i think he even Put that CD in the jukebox at Granny O'Shea's Tavern in Farmingdale. <laughs> it's funny. So there are tons of reasons to record. I'm pushing 40 minutes here, so I'm not going to, in this episode, go over recording devices. I will do, per perhaps in the next episode, I will um, talk about all the different kind of recording devices that are available to you and maybe help, you know, you decide what kind of you know gizmos and gadgets you might want to have to do some of the things that I've talked about here. Anyway, make recordings. Even if you're the only person that ever listens to them, they are beneficial. And there's going to come a day when you're going to go back and listen to those and go, man, I'm really glad that I recorded that. I'll talk to you in the next podcast.